You are listening to Paz de Chipotle, the show that will take you to discover the edible treasures of Mexico. Episode 9. Hola, everyone. Welcome to season two of Paz de Chipotle, the audible companion of Sabor. This is Mexican food magazine, the tastiest combo to guide you into the kitchens, markets, streets and traditions that made Mexico an edible paradise. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food historian, cook and author. To find more information about this project, please go to pazdechipotle.com. Find the show on Twitter as Chipotle Podcast. You can subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, and Player FM. Well, welcome everyone to the brand new season of Paz de Chipotle. It was a brief but very productive pause, as the next fall issue of Sabor is soon to come out. This new season will bring together voices from around the world, immigrant bloggers, entrepreneurs, authors and educators, all of them passionate about Mexican gastronomy and culture and very generously willing to share their stories with you. I want to thank all of you who have taken the time to write messages of support and appreciation. I want to say big thank you to some of my very dedicated followers on Instagram. The Curious Mexican, Bibia2418, Letty CCHH, <laughs> Letty CCHHSS, Two Worlds of Food, Sweet Canela, Los Altos Istanbul, Ezra CBA, and Food Dreamer247. And of course, there's so many more of you who have kindly expressed your love for the show and the magazine. And if I didn't mention you, please be sure I do read and appreciate each and every one of your messages. This episode has three stories featuring immigrants. First, Mexicans who went out to the big, big world and became street food ambassadors. Then, the delicious culinary footprint that Sephardi Jewish bakers imprinted in Puebla's colonial baking. And last, the very famous Cafés de Chinos, or small cafés run by Chinese immigrants at the dawn of the 20th century in Mexico. So get your foodie passports ready and let's get on with the show! If you think about it, street food is as old as the history of cities themselves. I would even go further back, but then it wouldn't really be called street food, of course, because, well, before cities, there were no streets. At first sight, there are some very obvious reasons why in cities, big and small, around the world, street food is so popular. And the first answer, I'm afraid, has really nothing to do with the fact that it earns you loads of Instagram points if you have an endless stream of selfies of you eating delicious street food. But street food is so popular because it's convenient, it's cheap and sometimes it can be very healthy. It is almost ubiquitous and most importantly, it allows you to carry on with your occupations without worrying about certain ingredients, cooking and washing. 
Street food is the simplest and most genius business idea that pretty much fuels the vast majority of the world's workforce. And if that isn't a great contribution to mankind, street food also allows people with a decent cooking talent to set up a really low-cost business wherever they are in the world. All those are very pragmatic and rational observations. But what about what eating street food makes us feel? Why do we like it so much? Well, in a way, eating street food is a very safe way to explore and enjoy authentic flavors and certain traditions of a culture that is not ours without actually having to travel to another country. Honest, plentiful, delicious and trusty street food is really here to stay. But the rest of the food sphere, it's a never-changing micro-universe. In the last five years or so, a mix of factors, such as an increased interest in the farm-to-plate movement, meaning buying food straight from the producers, making healthier food choices that are also culturally significant, that is, many major traditional cuisines have had a chance to get their five minutes of fame under the spotlight and certain ingredients and dishes have become hip and chic. We've seen the rise of hummus on everything, a craze for Middle Eastern spices, matcha paired in the most unholy ways imaginable, kimchi on every menu, people drinking kombucha like the world is going to end, and there's also been an increased interest about very, very specific diets like raw eating, clean eating, paleo, pescatarian, flexitarian, chia evangelists, spirulina gurus, and of course the new cult of avocado, like someone just invented a wheel. But you know what? Trends will come and trends will go. Give me a taco and let's call the day off. Mm, I think I should definitely put that in a tote bag. Trademark. But the point is, large cosmopolitan metropolis have international migration to thank for most of their gastronomic diversity, from the humble Polish grandmothers who began baking bagels at home and selling them in the streets of New York, to the legal and illegal Mexicans selling tacos and other delicious foods, comforting bowls of steaming noodles and Chinese dumplings, hearty Ethiopian stews, and many other wonderful dishes from around the world that can be enjoyed in the safety and comfort of our cities. But since this is a show dedicated to exploring Mexican gastronomy beyond the cookbooks, let's talk about the phenomena of street food in America, that is, the US, because it has the largest number of street food joints, trucks and stalls outside Mexico. A disappointing fact for younger generations who might think that Mexican food trucks are the latest craze and their burritos with wok are so in? Well, let me tell you that Mexicans have been selling food in the United States since the early 1800s. And by the way, there's no such thing as chile con carne in Mexico, and it's just a tiny fraction of border towns in Mexico that actually eat burritos. And no one says wok in Mexico. Life might be short, but you can say guacamole. If you want to know more about the history of Tex-Mex food, pause this episode and go right back to the first season of Pase Chipotle. In the first episode, I talk extensively about it. And then come back to this episode. I'll be here. Okay, back with today's episode. So the first type of foods that Mexican immigrants started selling 
were pretty similar to some of those you can find in Mexico. Large tricycles and pushcarts selling tamales, hot chocolate, tacos of barbacoa or goat stew, tortas or Mexican sandwiches, and humble boiled elotes or corn on the cob. The large presence of Mexican communities in the southern states of the US and on the west coast is explained by two phenomena. First, the fact that the territory was originally part of Mexico, and no budge treaty would simply wipe off their ancestral homeland. And the second reason is, well, the never-ending influx of Mexican immigrants looking for a better life. So long story short, tacos didn't go to America. America went to the tacos, as I heard a Chicano family say once. And knowing that a good meal beats any language barrier, an underground culture of Mexican street food rapidly gained a hardcore following. Mexican street food hotspots naturally evolved and became a space of socialization, meeting after work, hanging out with friends, and enjoying a treat with the family. They became an essential part of the identity of entire generations of Mexican Americans, Chicanos, Pachucos, Pochos, Paisas, Compas, and Cholos, that redefined their sense of belonging and identity as neither Mexicans nor Americans, and both at the same time. For these migrant Mexican-American communities, and for the matter Tex-Mex food as well, are symbols of cultural resistance, of pride and identity, and a way to own their rightful place at the multicultural American table. Mexican street food in Europe has a whole different story. Because for starters, there are no large Mexican communities there. It is mostly food enthusiasts who fall in love with the food whilst traveling or living abroad and go back home and recreate such life-changing flavors. But more often than not, the closest notion Europeans have about Mexican food comes from Tex-Mex iterations, which might be rightfully tasty, but is taken out of context and made seem as a representative food of a nation, which can be quite confusing for them when they are presented with actual authentic Mexican food. But there has also been quite a significant shift in the way people perceive and value street food. In Britain specifically, back in 2009, in fact, back in 2012, a taco truck won the British Street Food Awards. The rise of social media has also enabled a true revolution because it has democratized the access to all voices. And now every taquero from just around the corner has the power to instantly share with the world his delicious food, just like any restaurateur or glossy food writer. To close this segment, let's say that street food has never been so accessible. Dozens of apps help you navigate entire cities following the edible trail of the best food stalls, drugs and joints. So please, be a good citizen and support your Mexican street food vendors. Help them keep their business grow because culinary authenticity has never come in a more affordable packaging. It will keep those traditions alive, you will contribute to the local economy and in a way, you will help change lives while you enjoy delicious, soulful Mexican food. <laughs>
We'll return with the following segment after this short break. This podcast is the audible companion of Sabor. This is Mexican food, a quarterly digital magazine dedicated to the exploration of Mexico's gastronomic heritage and traditions. Build your timeless collection of evocative and thought-provoking edible stories and traditional recipes that will take you on a journey of discovery and enjoyment. In the summer issue, you will discover, under the green and cool canopy of the remote forest hills of southeast Mexico, a mystical plant that has for thousands of years been revered and treasured. The cocoa tree, perhaps the only tree that was ever destined to rule the entire world. This issue has a wonderful selection of delicious articles all about cocoa, Mexico's greatest gift to the world, its history, and heritage recipes for you to enjoy. You can purchase your digital copy now and enjoy it on all your devices. Go to pasachipotle.com forward slash magazine and get ready to cook, learn, and enjoy Mexican food like you never imagined. This section of the show is brought to you by WeAreDapperTies.com We Are Dapper Ties is a company created by Soul Brothers, Andreu and Julian, who believe that feeling and looking great should be an affordable ride for all. So whether you are scavenging libraries and second-hand bookshops for recipe books, exploring markets to find mysterious Mexican traditional ingredients, or listening to your favorite podcast about Mexican food, you need a tie. You need a damn good hand-picked tie. Andrew and Julian have carefully curated beautiful designs to offer you a selection of knitted, elegant, unique and affordable ties. Go to weardapperties.com and enter the promo code CHIPOTLE. You will get free shipping in all your orders all over the US. Go to weardapperties.com, enter the promo code CHIPOTLE. We are Dapper Ties, smart, affordable fashion. The existence of Mexican bread is a direct consequence of the Spanish conquest of the territory. The introduction of wheat, among many other products, radically transformed agriculture, food production and what became the Mexican cookbook. With only corn tortillas as a staple bread, the production and transformation of wheat was practically unknown in this part of the world. And when the first successful crops allowed the start of a bread production, caused yet another cultural clash between the indigenous and Spanish population. You see, for the indigenous tribes, corn was fundamental to their own existence. The abandonment of a nomadic life was only thanks to the domestication of corn precisely. No wonder why it became part of the creation myths. the children of corn. Many tribes call themselves. For them, it was and still is so much more than a part of their diet. Not just corn, but tortillas themselves became a symbol of a true sacred communion. A 
think we can all relate to the feeling that the Spanish may have experienced when after years of hard work and failed crops, they harvested the first crop in New Spain, that is Mexico. I can almost see the excitement and care with which they cleaned and ground the wheat and made the flour to prepare the bread and baked their first loaves. They blessed the crops, barns and mills, blessed the ovens and the hands that made possible to recreate Christianity's most culturally and religiously significant food, bread. I guess you can see where this is heading. So at some point in history, in Mexico, we had two breads equally revered and the synthesis of the beliefs surrounding coming face to face with each other. The clash was inevitably painful and the reconciliation unavoidable. But the story I'm going to tell you now actually takes place inside those colonial bakeries and specifically in the city of Puebla, just about two and a half hours from Mexico City, where behind doors many stories unraveled, including that one of the secret Sephardi bakers. But just before getting into that, let me tell you something about these bakeries and why they became places where wonders and horrors occurred. The city of Puebla is in the central high place of Mexico, which made it a perfect location for wheat crops to succeed, and with it, the whole production chain unraveled. Granaries, mills and bakeries were enough to produce flour and bread for the whole vice royalty and even to export to the Caribbean and South America. There are records showing that even British buccaneers used to raid Spanish vessels to steal sea biscuits and flour that came from Puebla. But in order to maintain such a high production of bread and other baked goods, bakery owners, who were always Spanish and never bakers themselves, hired master bakers, apprentices and helpers but also had a significant number of slaves who could have African, Asian or indigenous heritage and who, by law, could never, even if they gained their freedom, run a bakery of their own. But the Spanish were not the only ones that came from Europe to Mexico. Soon after the first waves of Spanish immigrants came quite a few Muslims and Sephardic Jews and more often than not pretending, both, to have converted to Catholicism because they were simply trying to escape the extreme anti-Semitism and religious intolerance in Spain because they were literally expelled after the unification of the House of León and Castile. But what is a Sephardic Jew, precious, I hear you ask? Well, the Jewish diaspora is one of the most complex to trace and study. The voluntary and forced migration has pushed them to every continent in the world. From the medieval ages, many Jewish communities fled the volatile and violent Middle East and North Africa due to the social instability that the many crusades had caused and relocated in different countries in Europe. Not that they were better treated there, but at least the option of living under the radar was actually possible. Of those communities who relocated in Spain, Portugal and a little bit of North Africa became known as Sephardi because the Hebrew name for Spain is Sepharad. The Spanish Inquisition was very quick to come up with a term for the Sephardi 
who posed as Christians, and that was crypto Jews. When looking for a low-profile job, many such crypto Jews joined the ever-growing business of bakeries. And since they famously came from a renowned baking tradition, it was a no-brainer for Spanish bakery owners to have poorly paid and highly skilled Jewish bakers, and even cover for them and even cover for them when inspectors arrived. The otherwise plain bread recipes that were commonly used were mainly focused on producing three types of qualities. First-class bread was made with blanched and refined wheat flour. Second-class bread with the sieved, slightly coarse leftovers. And the third class was made with mixed flours of inferior quality and wheat bran. I will tell you one interesting technical detail. Finest breads in New Spain, that is the Viceroyalty here in Mexico, were sold by weight, meaning bakers really tried to make every loaf meet the regulations. But the really low quality bread that was made and sold to working class people, that one was sold by peace. In the end, as it often happens, this low-quality bread was the one that gained the heart and tummies of all people. And it was in that type of bread where the crypto-Jewish bakers left their mark. Perhaps many of you have enjoyed many times bagels, biali, malawach, challah and matzo bread. You might have noticed that the use of ingredients such as anise seeds, sesame and orange blossoms are quite common to Jewish baking traditions. And that's precisely what they brought in to garnish the otherwise underwhelming and boring bread for the unprivileged and turn them into irresistible buns and pastries that continue to gain our hearts and tummies. Pastries like chilindrinas, timisclanes and cocoles are all variations of some of the dough enriched with molasses, aniseed, and with or without red sugar or sesame seeds as toppings. And in Puebla specifically, the king of all savory buns is no doubt the semita. This is a lardy round rolled bun topped with sesame seeds. This golden crusted bun is the star of a poblano dish simply called semita. The buns are sliced and the crumb is removed almost entirely. Yes, you heard right. You discard most of the crumbs. And next, you put a very heavy layer of sliced avocado, followed by a handful of quesillo cheese. To this, you can add a milanesa or chicken schnitzel, pickled pig trotters or cured pork leg, drizzled with olive oil. Next, papalo herb, raw onion rings, more avocado, sweet chipotles in adobo or pickled jalapeños, another very generous drizzle of olive oil and sprinkle some salt and your golden ticket to foodie heaven is ready. But let me warn you, they're not called this mighty creation a sandwich, although technically it's a sandwich, but spiritually it's not. And you will manage to offend every poblano on earth by doing so. So if the world learned to say burger, let it learn to say semita. To wrap up this segment, let me tell you that even more of this amazing story will feature in the upcoming fall issue of Sabor, this is Mexican food magazine, the story of semitas and of course the glorious recipes to bake and prepare the buns. I guarantee this to you, 
you will be crowned queen or king of all your fiestas to come. We'll return with the last section of this episode after the break. Finding constant inspiration in the great Mexican gastronomy is almost effortless, but producing, researching, writing and editing each episode to bring you an interesting and thought-provoking show is not that simple and definitely not free. It requires hours of hard work and dedication. I know you appreciate and enjoy this show as much as I do, but to keep this exciting project alive, your support is vital. Independent creators like myself bring diversity, empowerment and opportunities to enrich our global cultural exchange, which is why the support of audiences with a passion for knowledge, creativity and entrepreneurship is essential. That's why I want to thank Chris Rice for his support on Patreon. Join Chris and support this podcast. To do this, go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle podcast and select the type of donation you want to make. The Patreon program starts with just $1 a month. And trust me, every donation makes a big difference. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle podcast and just like Chris Rice, be part of this delicious story. The otherwise overseen Chinese presence in Mexico has commonly been assumed as a very recent phenomenon. After all, the food scene in most big cities in the world can't be complete without the ubiquitous Chinese buffets, with their glossy marinades, with their shiny marinades, mountains of steaming vegetables drenched in oil, and noodles thick and thin to satisfy the hungry office grunt. At the dawn of the 20th century, the rapid modernization of North American cities saw an increase in the demand for cheap labor to build cities, roads and railways. And that's when the first Chinese immigrants who saw an opportunity to leave their country and escape from famine, an increasing oppressive government and sick fortune in America. But things didn't go that well for them, as their railway companies paid poorly and when the works finished, they found themselves suddenly unemployed. Many of them moved on and joined cotton plantations. But the American government became increasingly intolerant to the presence of those who so recently had contributed so greatly to build their cities. It was then when they turned to Mexico, and many relocated down south. With next to little English and no notion of Spanish at all, many set up micro laundrettes and dry cleaners. Others continued working in plantations. And very soon after, other Chinese immigrants came to Mexico by ship, straight from China, arriving in the port of Veracruz. Small groups remained together and settled in different cities in the southeast. Some, however, headed to the capital, where a small but strong community established in today's Barrio Chino, or the Chinese Quarter which is located in the historical center and just a short walk from the Palace of Fine Arts and the Alameda Park. 
The Chinese people that have been living in California, Arizona, Nevada, and other borderline states observed that the train had a significant impact in the way people ate and traveled. Long commuting journeys left no room for lengthy meals, and people were nonetheless hungry. And this prompted a business idea. And they opened little stalls offering steamed and baked buns and hot coffee. Their popularity saw a huge growth of such small businesses across large cities in Mexico, where they famously stayed open for most of the day. After the years, others moved from these mobile cafes and went on to open their own restaurants. But the major concentration, to this day, the major concentration of Chinese immigrants in Mexico remains to be the Northwest, where, very regrettably, they suffered from racial abuse and intolerance from the local residents in certain areas of Baja California Sur and Sonora. A famous set of tunnels in Mexicali, Baja California, known as La Chinesca, still survives, and it's a very extensive network of interconnected basements that Chinese immigrants used to hide and move. But also, they used them to stay fresh. Because you might not know this, but in Mexicali, the temperatures can reach up to 122 Fahrenheit, or 50 Celsius degrees, which even for Mexican standards is quite unbearable. Ironically, during the American Prohibition, Many alcohol smugglers use these tunnels to hide and transport whiskey, beer and other drinks, along with money to launder in Mexico and opium they smuggled back to America. Just in case you were wondering when and who started smuggling illegal substances between America and Mexico, here is a nice story for you to tell. Eventually, and with the support of Mexicans, they gained a citizenship, and with it, a long-due recognition and protection this time from the second country in America who also benefited greatly from the Chinese immigrants' hard work. If you're planning to visit Mexico City, take note that between Bellas Artes, or the Palace of Fine Arts, and the Zócalo, which is the main square, are quite a few famous Chinese cafes and restaurants, with their loved staples of milky coffee, steamed and baked pastries, along with the classic all-you-can-eat Chinese buffets. Although the Chinese quarter seems next to dead during the mornings, like a fairy tale, it comes back to life at night, as the big round lamps cheerfully light up the narrow streets with their distinctive red glow, as recorded traditional Chinese music can be heard outside the many bars, restaurants and joints that are well worth a visit. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pasa Chipotle. 
a show dedicated to the exploration of Mexico's delicious gastronomic traditions. The next episode will feature my first guest of the second season, Mexican expert and food blogger extraordinaire Meli Martinez, author of the blog Mexico in My Kitchen. Meli will share with you her wonderful story of love, cultural translation and, of course, delicious Mexican food. The episode will air on September 4th. Check out my new ebook, Puebla's Great Food Tour. My beautiful hometown is the undisputed gastronomic capital of Mexico's grand cuisine. With this ebook, you will eat, drink, and discover Puebla's culinary heritage and the historical events that shape the edible treasures of a world acclaimed cuisine. Take this exciting gastronomic journey with you in all your digital devices. Use the interactive foodie checklist. Navigate the city with fully detailed maps, follow and enjoy the wonderful edible and historical trails of Puebla. The tour combines visits to key heritage sites that have shaped Puebla's history together with a recommended selection of tasty dishes and refreshing drinks. The book also contains the necessary practical information to help you navigate menus and how to order like a local. One thing's for sure, after this tour, you will understand why Mexico's national cuisine is an infinite source of inspiration, knowledge and pleasure. Go to pasdechipotle.com to find out more. Remember to subscribe to my newsletter. Simply go to pasdechipotle.com and click on the yellow label to sign up. You will also get a special free little ebook with recipes. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Subscribe, rate, and share this show so more people can find it. Goodbye from me, my friends. Until the next time.